Today, I thought it would be appropriate for us to talk about worry, and I want to ask you a question today that Jesus actually asked 2,000 years ago, and it's highly relevant today. Here's what he says in Matthew 6, 27. He asks, can worry make you live longer? And so the 13 of you here in this room answer that. Can worry make you live longer? Does worry make you healthier? Does worry make you happy? There is a huge difference. I want to make this clear. There's a huge difference between legitimate concern and worry. Legitimate concern leads to action, which prepares you for a better tomorrow. So we want to have hand sanitizer. We want to have masks. We want to provide ample uh, space for folks to uh, socially distance. Legitimate concern has us preparing for when we can open the campus back up. Worry, however, causes you to do nothing. It leads to inaction, um, and it robs you not only of today, it robs you of your future. But since worry is such a prevalent thing, we all go through worry, um, and it camps out in our minds. We don't need to try to explain away worry. What we need to do is drive it away. So I'm going to talk to you today uh, from God's word how to do that. I read this week, I read about a lady who said she was constantly being worried about the coronavirus, what it was going to do to her and her family. And here's how she determined that she was going to um, drive worry from her life. And here it is, how to defeat worry by replacing what ifs with even ifs. I thought this was really profound. And she got the idea from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego whenever um, they're in Babylon and the king makes a 90-foot high statue and he makes a law that says everyone who hears the music must bow down to this statue and you must worship the statue. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't. They said, we're going to worship the true God. Now, the... the uh, there was a legitimate thing that they were facing that day. They could see their fear. You and I can't see coronavirus. We can't see necessarily whether we're going to have a job. We can't see finances. They could see the thing that was causing them the potential worry. It was a fiery furnace. Think of a, of, of a lead smelting furnace. That's how big this thing was. That's how hot this thing was. They could see it, and they said, we will not bow down. But the king liked them because they were helpful to his king, uh, kingdom, so he, he gave them a second opportunity and, and a warning. He says this in Daniel chapter 3 verse 15. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image that I made very good, but if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then here, look at this question. Then what God? Now notice it's a lowercase g. And this is what the enemy asks you. He says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The enemy's question is, if, what if you get attacked by coronavirus? Then what God? And he doesn't know, he actually knows about it. He doesn't want you to know about the true God. There is a lowercase g that is always, he cannot deliver you. And that's where worry takes you is you're depending on a lowercase g. Now look what they did. They said in verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. The God, capital G, not these gods that you've been worshiping, O King Nebuchadnezzar. The God is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from, uh, deliver us from your majesty's hand. And here it is. But even if... Satan wants you to t say, what if, what if, what if, what if, then what God can save you? No, 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 no. We want to be even if people, even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods, your lowercase g's, or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if you throw us into the fiery furnace, even if we die today, our hands, our lives are in the hands of the one true God, and that's where we want them to be, so we will not bow down. You want to get rid of worry? The first step is to, is to replace your what ifs with even ifs. If you did that just today, it would radically change today for you. And if you learn to do this for a lifetime, it will radically change your lifetime. 
Now, in the Old Testament, there's, there's a book called Jeremiah. It's the prophet Jeremiah. And he actually writes to the exiles in Babylon. Their, their country has been um, defeated by the Babylonians. Jerusalem has defeated, been defeated and destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. And he took all the best and brightest from Jerusalem, took them to Babylon, forced them to be in slavery in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes this letter of encouragement to those people in exile. And here's what he says to them. Um, I had to change it. There it is. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He's talking to exiles. They're away from their home. They are four months' journey from their hometown. And he says, here's what God says to them. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Remember that word harm. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, I want you to notice there um, th- some words. Plans to, uh, let's see, where, what do I want to do? <laughs> plans to prosper you circle that plans to prosper you that I changed the the version from here to up there that's why I'm having trouble going back and forth I want you to circle those words and then I want you to notice there's some U's in there I want you to put your name next to a U for I know the plans I have for Doug declares the Lord plans to prosper Doug and not to harm Doug plans to give Doug a hope and a future make it intensely personal God has plans for you because let's be honest how many of you in this room how many of you online 2020 has turned out exactly as you planned let me see your hands let me hear you online did it turn out that way six weeks ago we didn't know we were going to be doing church like this for six weeks I was in Israel when all of this happened I didn't know if I was going to get home from Israel this has not turned out the way we intended for it to turn out but that's okay God is still in control and even though we're still in our hometowns we may not be in our church today we're not four months journey from our home God says I have plans for you and he wants to make it very personal to you how many of you your lives have turned out exactly like you thought they would from five years ago ten years ago no I think that's not true and and here's part of the reason that it's that your life has not turned out the way you wanted it to exactly the way you wanted it to because you're not in control you were never designed to be in control God's in control all right so I want you to answer out loud today even if you're at home startle your children if they're in another room or if they're playing whatever answer these questions out loud do we all struggle with worry Yes. Do we all have regrets from dumb choices we've made? Does worry come from living your life God's way? Do the regrets, your greatest regrets, have they come because you lived life the way God wanted you to? No one ever, ever says, I was following God and it led me to worry myself to death. No one ever says, I was following God and it led to the greatest regret in my life. Nobody says those things. So if we're going if, if to replace our what-ifs with even-ifs, there's four things I want you to choose today. Number one, I want you to choose God's plan. Choose God's plan. That's number one. It's a choice that you have to make. Jesus said it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus wiped out every other option. There is one way according to God's Son who died on the cross for our sins, was raised um, to life, never to die again. There's one way to get to heaven. It's through Jesus Christ, and so you have to follow him. Now, if you're online, you're going to see the picture in a picture here in a second. Go ahead and put that up there if you would, Nate, and I'm going to talk to the people here. Now, our plans, our plans are we want 
We want it to go smooth and easy. And just think if your life was smooth and easy. If you gave your child everything your child ever wanted, your kid would be a spoiled, rotten brat. You would be the same way if your life was like that top plan. Your plan versus God's plan. God's plan takes you over here, this little girl in, in our little picture. She rides down. There's some rocks down there. It seems to be something bad, but if you're following God, God turns that into something good. And you may not know it till you get up here. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm drawing with my, with my little laser pointer. I'm drawing a cross at the top of where the rocks were because you may not know that God was with you until you get through that that difficult time now look here you got this weird little ladder I think about the ladder when you're at a at a carnival you know and you have to climb up that ladder and not fall off well that may be how you feel but if you're with God he has designs through you climbing through that ladder to train you for whatever's happening next then you look over here there's a boat I just assume this is either a fishing boat or it's a pontoon boat or it's a cruise ship I just figure God has that plan for my life right this is part of my plan right here and I'm riding that and when I get through I'm gonna say yes God thank you for taking me on that that fishing trip or I don't know I'm just making stuff up you get up here that actually looks like a, a golfing flag doesn't it so we're going to pretend that that's a golfing flag and sometimes I can experience God out on the golf course sometimes I'm tested in my relationship with God on the golf course but anyway we get over here and here's here is a a big storm now the point is you may not have chosen those but God's path is not a smooth, easy path. God takes you through these things to prepare you for what's going to happen next. I want you to think about Joseph. We've talked about Joseph a number of times. did a whole series on Joseph. He ends up in a foreign land, sold into slavery by his brothers who were jealous of him. Then he eventually gets thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. And 22 years later, from the time he was sold into slavery by his brothers to his brothers are before him, he has, he has all of this perspective. He can look back at his life and he can say these words to his brothers. You intended to harm me. There's that word again. God said, my plans will not harm you. Now, God's plans can hurt sometimes. Was Jesus Christ hurt when he was, when he was crucified? Yes, but ultimately he was not harmed. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what was being done. If you're following God's plans, you may get hurt in this life, but no one can ultimately harm you because you're part of his family, and he will work all things together for good to, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Whether it's good or bad that happens in your life, he can make you look more like Jesus. Hurt can happen. People hurt us, but God can turn that into good, and he can turn it, in, and he will not allow it to harm our lives or our future. See, God has in mind this blessing, this problem, which really is a blessing in disguise, and all of these wonderful things your designer has for you if you follow him. But there's one small catch. You have to be on his path. You have to be following him. No one ever stumbles onto this path. It's a choice. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 13. Go in to God's path. It is a narrow gate. The gate to, to destruction is wide, and the road that leads there is easy to follow. A lot of people go through that gate. That's the contemporary English version. So here's the point. The crowd follows the crowd to destruction. The easy path, according to Jesus, is destruction. The more difficult path is what wise people do. The wise people follow Jesus to life. So the two answers are the crowd follows the crowd to destruction, and the wise follow Jesus to life. 
Uh, now, God has not promised any of those benefits to the person who doesn't follow him. So many of us, what we do is we experience pain and suffering in this life that God never intended for us. Not only do we go down paths and we cause pain to ourselves, but God, we, we don't experience the blessing that God had for us along the way. So if you're going your path, God will, will redeem you and bring you back, but he's not obligated to give you all the blessings you would have had had you followed him the entire time. A classic example of this is someone going their own way and, and destroying their own life is the woman at the well. Um, now, Jesus has sent the disciples on to get food. He's in Samaria, which they, they didn't even want to go to Samaria, but Jesus had an appointment with this woman. And here's what it, what it says in John chapter 4, verse 6. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well, and there's never a, an insignificant detail in a story in the, in the Bible. He says it was noon. This was not an insignificant detail. I'll tell you that in a minute. Tell you why. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? The Samaritan woman... Taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Now, here's the deal. The Jews hated the Samaritans because they were, they were a mixed breed of folks. So the, the Jews were supposed to marry only Jews. They were supposed to keep their bloodline pure. The Samaritans didn't do that. They began to worship different gods. And so the, the Jews hated the Samaritans, would not even walk through their territory. They would walk the long way around so that they wouldn't even have to step foot on Samaritan soil. Jesus intentionally goes to the well at noon. The reason we think the woman was there at noon is because she was an outcast. She, everyone um, hated her. She had had five different husbands. The man that she was living with now was not her husband. And so she goes during the heat of the day to get water. Why? Because probably no one else was there. It was the easiest thing to do to go get water when no one was there. Jesus shows up in Samaria and he talks to a woman. A rabbi would never talk to a woman. A Jewish man would never talk to a Samaritan woman. And they certainly wouldn't do it in public because it would be beneath them. Jesus intentionally comes and, and talks to this woman. He, he has this rather um, logical icebreaker. She's coming to get water. He says, hey, I'm thirsty. Would you give me a drink? And she's blown away that a Jewish man talks to her. And so then he cuts to the chase and he tells her that he has what she's looking for in life. You see, she has a drinking problem. I'm not talking about, you know, the well water that she's coming to get. She has a drinking problem. She's trying to get a, a, a spiritual, emotional need met through something physical. And it's not the well water that she's trying to get the, this need met. It's men. She has, she has trying, she's trying to fill her innermost needs through men. And, and, and ladies in the room that have ever been around a man for very long, can a man satisfy you for eternity? No. Y'all are afraid to answer that question. That was not a trick question. It's a dead end to try to find a human being because here's why. God designed men to be satisfied by God. God designed women to be satisfied by God. Anything less than God and you'll be severely disappointed in your life. This woman was severely disappointed in her life. What she needed was not another man. What she needed was God. And when she finally realized that God was sitting there talking to her, it radically changed her. She jumps up and she runs back into town. Now this is key. And this is how you know that you have had an encounter with God when you no longer hide your past. You don't have any more secrets. You don't care because the blood of Jesus has cleansed you. This woman who was an outcast who came to the well at noon runs back into town. She's at the well because she's avoiding people. She goes back into town and she says, everyone, I think maybe I met the Messiah. She says this, come see a man who told me all about my life. Could this be the Messiah? And the, the Bible tells us practically the entire town becomes Jesus followers because of this woman. 
This is remarkable. She encountered Jesus. And that's what you're going to have to do to get out of worry and regret. Because here's the thing. What most of us do when worry paralyzes us, most of us do one of two things. Either we repeat the mistakes that we've already made. That's what this woman did. She had desperately wanted love and acceptance, and she thought only a man could do that. So when one man would leave her, what would she do? She'd go and find another man. That's, the, that's her whole life. She repeated her mistakes. What we do, what the others of us do on the other side of the spectrum is, if we're consumed with worry, we just stop trying. Either we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and, and be disappointed, or we're just going to stop. We're just going to quit. People on that side of the spectrum, hopelessness just gnaws at their souls. Their lives are filled with nothing but regrets. But here's the really cool thing about life with God. In God's plan, if you choose to follow God's plan, getting to the end of ourselves is actually the beginning of hope. When you think there is no hope, that's when you're ready for Jesus. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3. This is the message translation. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. When you're filled, you know, if your life is a cup and you're filled with you, there's no room for God. And God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself into, into your life. But when you pour all of that out and you come to him and say, I'm empty, he will fill you and he will change you. Jesus said it this way. Put God's work first and do what he wants, then other things will be yours as well. In other words, choose God's plan and then all the rest of the things that you need in life will be taken care of. My personal study right now, I'm in, in the Old Testament in the book of Haggai and it's the second um, shortest book. There's only two chapters in there. And, and one of the things that, that God keeps saying in Haggai in the, in the first, verse, uh, first chapter of Haggai is the Old Testament version of, of Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and these things. And, and, and his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Well, in the Old Testament, God specifically brought the, the exiles from Babylon. He brought them back to Jerusalem to rebuild his temple. God orchestrated this. It was a, a miraculous thing. It is just as miraculous as when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He brings them back from slavery to rebuild his house. And then they get distracted and they stop rebuilding his house and they start focusing on everything else. And God says to them, I have shut the heavens. Your crops are not, being, uh, are not growing. They're not producing. Your, your money doesn't go far enough. Nothing in your life is working. Why? Because you've neglected the house of God. He says it twice in chapter one of Haggai. It's the Old Testament version of seek first the kingdom of God. He said, get the things of the church right. Get the things of God right in your life and everything else in your life will go better. So the first thing is we got to choose God's plan. Second, we got to choose God's word. This, uh, this verse became my memory verse this last week. I just came across it on Monday. I shared it with Praying Pelican. Um, I, I was asked to do a, a, a devotional for their staff. And so this verse came up last Monday, and, and now it's my memory verse. It's Isaiah 66, 2, and it says, These are the ones I look on with favor. That jumped out as I'm reading it. I'm going, oh, I want to know God's favor. Who does God look on with favor? Here, he tells us, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and those who tremble at my word. So I started thinking, well, I know what humble is. Humble is putting other people first. But I actually looked at this. I looked this up because I wasn't sure. What does it mean to have a contrite spirit? Who, what does that mean? So I looked it up. And here's what, here's what the uh, International Bible Encyclopedia said. I wrote this down in, in my, uh, my personal journal. A contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. Recognizing I'm a sinner I don't throw stones at you because I realize I should die for my own sin. 
So it says contrite actually means crushed, crippled, or broken. So picture a conscience that is crushed by the weight of its own sin. And then here's the last thing I wrote down. A contrite heart offers no excuses, shifts no blame. It fully agrees with God about how evil it is. So God says, the people I look on with favor, they're humble. They put other people before themselves. They're contrite in heart. They know they are sinners. They deserve hell. And there is nothing good in them according to the scripture. And then the last thing he says, it trembles at his word. I want to be a person who trembles at the word of God. See, God's word gives us wisdom about what to do. Um, how to gain spiritual victories. In the midst of physical problems, obstacles, pandemics, the word of God gives us the path of light. And if we will tremble at God's word, he will give us the, the right decisions to make. As we move forward, we meditate on, we apply God's word, you'll gain insight how to, how to accomplish everything that God has for you, regardless of what's happening outside in the world. And, and here's what you need to know. The way you treat the word of God is the way you treat the God of that word. If you have no regard for the word of God, you have no regard for God himself. I don't care what you say or how loudly you sing or how much you close your eyes or how high you lift your hands. If you neglect the word of God, you do not love the God of that word. Here's what it Paul said to Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And, and I, I memorized this, it said, so that the man of God, that's the New American Standard, here's the NIV, so that the servant of God, I believe this is a much better translation. I'm a servant. I, I'm, you may call me pastor, some of you call me pastor. Most of you don't call me pastor, but there are some of you that call me pastor. I'm a servant. And, and my ministry is only as good as, as my serving spirit. And, and Tammy's in here. Tammy's, Tammy's a servant of the children's ministry. When I worked in youth ministry, there, there was this, I shared this with Praying Pelican. When I was in youth ministry, there was this whole debate on whether we were youth directors, youth uh, ministers, or youth pastors. And, and, and all of these guys came up and they started going, I'm a youth pastor, and I'm a youth pastor. I'm like, I don't care what you call me. Because this guy said at this conference where we were talking about, he says, when you boil it all down, you're servants to teenagers. You're servants to children. I am servants to infants through, I, I said earlier to, to artists, I'm, I'm servants to infants through ancients. And, and I'm not going to tell you if I think you're ancient. You, you can figure that out on, yourself, on your own. I'm not calling you ancient, but I'm telling you that I'm called to serve. So God looks with favor on those who are humble, contrite in spirit, know they're guilty and they tremble at God's word. You want the favor of God, you better listen to the word of God. Third thing you need to choose is God's people. Have you ever heard of someone saying, man, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to be on the last place team. I wanna be a team of losers. I would like to be in the losers hall of fame. I was thinking about this. When my, my little league career was a pretty good career. We, we won, I think all three years that I was in little league, we won the championship. One year we were undefeated. Then I got drafted when I was 13. So I moved into senior little league and my coach drafted all 13 year olds. So the senior little league was 13 to 15 year olds. We we were all 13 year olds. We lost every game that year and it wasn't close. It wasn't pretty. You go from throwing, uh, pitching off a mound that's 45 uh, feet away to, to 60 feet, you know, which is the major league, 60 feet, one inches. And that's a major deal for a 12 year old to become a 13 year old and move back 15 more feet. We were terrible in it and we lost every game. Nobody's ever said, I want to be on a team of losers and be in the losers hall of fame. 
So the reason I tell you this is you weren't intended to go through life alone. Get the right people around you. God's people are the right people because there's really two dangers when, you're, when you have a team. The first danger is an absence of good teammates. So I brought a picture. Um, go ahead and put that picture up there if you would, Nate. So four years ago, I went to Machu Picchu in Peru and I hiked the Inca Trail. It is 27 miles that you hike over four days. And the reason I'm gonna turn around and, and, and kind of talk through this, so I, I don't know if you can see it very well on, online or not, but so you start here at, um, at 8,200 feet elevation, you go up to almost 14,000 feet of elevation up here, you come back down and you eventually get to Machu Picchu, it's actually stretched out too far on that thing. You get to Machu Picchu and it's at 7,500 feet. Now I tell you this because the first day, you can't even see it, well yeah, I can't over here. So this, you're walking along, we were on this trail, it's, it's, like a, it's like a dirt road big enough for two lanes of traffic to go on and you notice the first part, it's downhill. We're just cruising along, we're talking, there's 20 of us on the trip, we're having a great time. And then all of a sudden we get to this first little thing here. See the campsite's here, that's where we're gonna spend the first night. And so we get there and we start up the hill and all of a sudden it gets hard. It's a lot more elevation than we are here in Texas. It gets difficult and so what they said was, everybody walk at your own pace. And so I began to walk at my own pace, which means I'm leaving some people behind and there's other people leaving me behind. Before long, on day one in Machu Picchu of a four-day hike, I'm all alone and I am trudging. I'm telling you, I'm on this mountain and there's steps and I'm trudging and nobody's around. There's not a single person. I can't hear anyone. When I yell out, no one hears me. I'm walking along. It's beautiful scenery and I'm by myself and I'm going, oh dear God, I've got four days of this mess to go through to get back home where I can hang out with people. And I, I really was. I was, I was distraught because the scenery didn't do anything for me. I was alone and I hated it. And I got about an hour along, I'm going along and I'm thinking, oh, this is terrible. And I came around the corner and two people from our group were sitting down resting. And I kid you not, the moment I came around the corner, they stood up and they go, Doug, come join us. And they started cheering me on because I was puffing, man. I was about to hurl. I was, and, and they go, come on. And all of a sudden, I got a pep in my step and I started making it a little faster. And they said, come sit down, tell us about your journey. It was the coolest thing ever. And I'm telling you this because the next three days, I did not let these two people out of my sight. When I started getting slow, they would say, hey, we'll take a break. Let's, let's do this. Whatever the situation was, it was so much fun. Then I was able to go up to Dead Woman's Passes at 14,000 feet. And you talk about a difficult journey. The coolest thing ever was to sit up there with a group of people. We have just gone up this incredible mountain. We had the right teammates with us. Because if you don't have teammates, I don't think I would have made that journey. And then when we come into Machu Picchu on that last day, it was glorious, it was spectacular, but for the next four days when I found these two people who cheered, clap, I'm not making this up, they clap for me as I'm coming up, yes, you can do it. I'll never forget the feeling I had when someone had faith in me and they helped me if I stumbled, they encouraged me, you need the right teammates. You don't have those people, you're not gonna make it in this life. Second thing is the presence of not so good teammates. There was this one guy on this trip, last person to get everywhere. We, uh, we would have lunch. This was really cool. It was really not that hard because we had, we had uh, Peruvian guys that, that would take care of everything. They would carry our tents. Uh, they would set up our tents. We would get to a place for lunch. It was awesome. But this one guy was, was 
last one to get everywhere, and he was mad at those of us who were ahead of him. And he whined and he complained, and he talked about, well, when I was on this trip, they did this, and, and you need to slow down. Why don't you let us go first so we can get ahead of you? And I just wanted to go, shut up. All I wanted to do was sit at the opposite end from this guy because I didn't want to hear his stories. I didn't want to hear him whine. And when it got time to go, when we finished lunch and we put our backpacks on, I would find my two little people and we would head up and he would be talking to us. You need to wait. We're like, see ya. Now, I, I, he had other people to come with. I, we weren't abandoning him. But the point is, people who, who are far from God will pull you down. They will not encourage you. See, if I want to go to Dallas, I don't need to get in a, in a car with a group of people going to Houston. It's going to take us a long time to get to Dallas if we turn, to, on, turn south on 45, right? That's not a trip I'm prepared to make. Not so good teammates are not necessarily bad. They may be fun to be with, but if all you have is fun to be with people who have no goals in their life, you're not going to get anywhere either. And bad teammates not only do they avoid growth issues in their lives, they do not want you to grow in your life because misery loves company. They'll say things like, don't go to church. Come do this with me. Don't go to small group. Don't do this. And if you were to ask them why, <laughs> I think a lot of times it, it's because their pathetically um, shriveled up spiritual life would be exposed if you went and did spiritual things. And wouldn't it be so much more helpful if, you know, you see face masks now with, with slogans on it, wouldn't it be so much more helpful if, if the wrong teammates wore something that says, I'm pathetic spiritually and I want you to be pathetic spiritually. Wouldn't it be helpful if they wore a t-shirt or they had that on their shirt? Oh, wait, you're, you're not the right teammate for me. I need the right teammate that will encourage me. See, according to the Bible, the wisest man who ever lived was Solomon. And Solomon has some, some uh, advice for us, but there's an interesting side note. Bad teammates, the presence of bad teammates is what eventually caused Solomon to turn his back on God and, and lose his kingdom. You can study about that. But before all of that, in Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10, and 12, it says this. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor. If one person falls, the other person can reach out and help. But people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So, so I looked this up. I've, I've never forgotten this, this experiment I read about years ago. I just looked it up this week. There's several different examples of this. But they tested a horse to see how much a horse could pull. And one horse by itself, on average, can pull about 8,000 pounds. So logical people would say if you put two horses together, they could, pull, they could each pull 8,000 pounds. They'd pull 16,000 pounds. But what they found out was when you put two horses together, they can pull three times as much as one, one can do. So two horses could pull 24,000 pounds. It's not just you pull your weight, I pull mine. When we're together, we can pull more together. That's what the scripture is saying. Get the right people in your life. Get the wrong people out of your life. Fourth thing you need to choose is God's pace. We're at a slow pace time, aren't we? Everybody's tired of the quarantine. I run into people at Walmart, not literally because we have to stay six feet apart. And they say, I cannot wait until we can meet again as a church. But what, what I hope you've done during this time is I hope you focus on what's important. 
I've been asking God every day, teach me, teach new life what we need to learn, what is most important, what do we need to learn through this. This, this is a slow-paced time. There's times that, that we're going to go on a fast pace, but there, this is a slow-paced time. And your faith in Jesus, your, your walking with Jesus is a journey, it's not a destination. Way too many people think it's a, it's a destination. When we used to go see my parents in, in Borger, Texas, it is a 500-mile journey from here. And, and as you get into the panhandle, there are some rest areas, and they are nice rest areas. This is not like when I was a kid. These are nice. They have, they have slick marble-like floors, and they're clean, and they have um, vending machines. They've got drinks. They've got hot chocolate. They've got cappuccino. They've got snacks. It is a, it is a tornado shelter, because if you know anything about the Panhandle, you're going to need a tornado shelter from time to time. Nice, clean bathrooms. It's air-conditioned. They even have some history of the Panhandle. You can go push a little thing and watch a little video. It is really nice. How stupid would it be? for us to drive to a rest area and say, I think we'll stay. I think we'll make our home here. We got everything we need. The Christian life is not a destination. It's a bunch of little destinations. It's a comma. I come to Christ. It's a comma. That's not a period. You're not in the kingdom of God and you, you totally turn your back on Jesus and, and his bride. It's a comma. And then you move to the next thing. And then God has you do this. Sometimes God has you move through several steps at one time. But many times it's one step at a time. And, and what happens too often, and I'm seeing this, is people think they've arrived spiritually. Can I just tell you? <laughs> When you think you're spiritual, you're not. If you have to tell someone, I'm spiritual, you're not. If you have to tell someone you're humble, you're not. If you have to tell someone that, that you're patient or kind or gentle, or if you tell someone, I'm trembling at God's word, I really seriously doubt that you are. Because remember what it said, the ones that God looks on with favor, they're humble, they're contrite in heart, they recognize I'm a sinner saved by grace and they tremble at God's word you do those things people will recognize it you don't have to tell them see we're called to enjoy this journey this life and we're called to invite other people to join this journey with us so I want to give you a bottom line statement for today my job your job is the relentless pursuit of all that God has made me to be I'll give you a second to write that down. My job is the relentless pursuit of all that God has made me to be. And then I want you to get this next sentence. I want you to really see this next sentence. Everything else is sin. Everything else is sin. You have enough time every day to do God's will. If you're not accomplishing God's will, guess what? You're doing some things that are not God's will. Your job is the relentless pursuit of everything that God has made you to be, and everything else is sin. See, you're, you're either choosing God's plan or you're choosing your own. You're either choosing God's word or your own, God's people or your own, God's pace or your own pace. Back in the 70s, I was thinking about this. Back in the 70s, there was this bumper sticker. And, and I, don't know how, I don't know why God gave me some, some things that stuck in my mind, but this bumper sticker always bothered me. And here's what it said. It said, God is my co-pilot. And as a kid, I thought, I thought God was in charge. God's my co-pilot? I, I really did. I, I was confused by this. And, and we had some discussions about this. And so then a few years later, someone said, oh, no, no, that's not good. Here's, here's what the next slogan was. If God is your co-pilot, switch seats. But that still bothers me. Because 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're in the cockpit. I'm in the plane. I got to be in first class one time, and it's because it was an accident. It's when I got arrested. And the only, the only seat available for the next flight to Haiti was first class. And so I got to be first class, but it was an accident. But even in first class, I don't have, I'm not steering the plane. I'm on the plane. Wherever those pilots decide to take me, that's where I'm going. And I'll get off. And, and I hope it's the destination on my ticket. But if God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are flying the plane, and I'm just on the plane, it means wherever he lands, and he says, get off, what is my job to do? If he says, we're going to another destination, what is my job? To stay on. I'm just on the plane. If you choose God's plan, God's word, God's people, and God's pace, if you choose those four things, I promise you, worry will melt out of your life and you'll bring glory and, and honor to God see if you know how to worry you know how to worship worry is turning over and over and over those what ifs things you cannot control worship is replacing those things with God it's replacing the what ifs with even ifs and saying God even if all hell breaks loose even if I get coronavirus even if I'm still going to worship you. I'm still going to let you fly the plane, and I'm going to follow you. Do those things. It will radically change your life, and it will cause it. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Never should someone glorify your good deeds. They should glorify your, good, your father in heaven because of your good deeds. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you have given us everything we need. Forgive us for being such bucket heads and doing our thing. God, we get off your plan and then we get mad at you because we get off your plan and it never was your plan. God, we turn our backs on your word and we ignore it. Oh, God didn't really mean not to have sex outside of marriage. God didn't really mean that we're supposed to give to the church. God didn't really mean those things. And we get off your plan. We get away from your word. We get away from your people. And then we run at a relentless pace and fall down exhausted. And we get mad at you, God, because you didn't provide what we wanted. Forgive us for being such immature, selfish people. You oppose proud, selfish people, but you give grace to the humble, those who are contrite in spirit, and those who tremble at your word. God, help us to become those type of people. In Jesus' name, amen.